Well, good morning. You all right? Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve. You picked a great Sunday to join us because we're going to finish the Bible. So that's it. I'm glad God brought you today. The last chance, the last page of your Bible is where we're going to be. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't, there should be one in the pew right in front of you or around you. Ask your neighbor, they'll give you one. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Um, You know, I grew up in the church. I grew up uh, knowing and hearing God's word. And uh, for somebody who grew up in the church, I would always uh, be surprised at how little I knew about the Bible. Uh, And I don't attribute that to anybody in terms of my church upbringing or my family or any of that. Um, but, But there are portions of the Bible that are difficult to understand, aren't there? There, maybe if you've been with us through the course of this study, you've gone, Steve, I just, I just don't know what to do with angels with four different faces like animals, and I, I'm not real sure. There are other places that you uh, get to in the Old Testament, you go, well, they sacrificed an ox or they set out a fleece, and while I understand it, I really don't know how to apply it. Do I set out the fleece? Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Do I sacrifice an animal? Is that how God speaks today? What do I do? So there's, there's portions of the Bible that just become uh, obscure to us, right? That uh, we get limited in our understanding and therefore we get limited in our application. But there are other portions of the scriptures that we come to where it says forgive one another. And I don't really struggle so much with understanding as much as I struggle with applying. Amen? But I, it's bear with one another. I go, oh, how many one another's do I have to bear with? How much? I, I feel like Peter, you know? Jesus, can I forgive and get to seven and that be it? Please, you know? So you get confronted uh, with those things. And when it comes to the book of Revelation, you know, as we've been through these, these 22 chapters, uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the, the reading I do on this book is I'll come across commentators who will rebuke those who are reading it for uh, having never preached this book. And I've talked to many, several of you who said, I've never heard this book preached. I've never been in a church that has taken time to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this book. And a lot of times, Revelation, when you come to it, every, you know, I I remember when we started this, this series, I had several people go, Steve, I was not excited about this. I'm not excited about us going through Revelation. I can do the church's thing, but now I'm going to get into it, and I don't understand it, and it doesn't make sense to me, and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. That Revelation ends up being more interesting to us by all the, the people out there who go, that's certainly interesting, but it really isn't important to my life. It's interesting to think about the future and to consider what God will do and what the, who the Antichrist is, and that's kind of interesting, but it really doesn't impact my life on a day-to-day basis. And last week, we, we got to the end of this, we got to the last chronological verse in your Bible. You see it there in Revelation 22, verse 5. They will reign forever and forever. And it feels like the book should end there. That the echoes of worship and the ruling and reigning of God with his people and sin being eradicated and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all evil being uh, finally and ultimately removed and the new heavens and the new earth created, it feels like it ought to stop there. But one commentator as you get to the last 15 verses of this book, said this, no book in the Bible has a more pointed attestation, a stronger safeguarding against tampering, or a more urgent recommendation for study and observance than does the apocalypse, especially in its epilogue. So in these last 15 verses, John, in a sense, puts his pen down after experiencing these heavenly visions. And he's going to give you warning and encouragement. He's going to give you an invitation. There's going to be promises. There's going to be worshiping. All of these huge major ideas are going to get put together in the last 15 verses of your Bible. And if you were to finish the Bible, what would you say? What's the period you would put on the end of the Bible? What would you want to make sure that people knew as you come to the end of book 66? It might surprise you. 
Because the truths that we have in the last 15 verses are so remarkably important for your Monday morning. They're so profoundly important for what's going on in your heart and your mind and the things that you're thinking of as you walk in here this morning. They're such a compact, brief, direct application of all of the 22 chapters that we've looked at so far. So here's what I want you to do. Look at, you're in Revelation 22. Y'all there? Okay. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1 because Revelation 1 and Revelation 22 fit together. That when you get to the end of this book, everything gets tied up like a bow. And the same truths that you see in Revelation chapter 1 show up again in Revelation chapter 22. So go back to Revelation chapter 1. Let's just look at the first eight verses. And you're going to see a lot of this here as we go through our time here in Revelation chapter 22. Look at 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You want to start this book again? Man, isn't that a good intro? Now turn back to Revelation chapter 22. And let's give thanks for our time here in God's word, and let's see what he would have to teach us here in this text. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks for these few moments that we gather together and we look into the word of God. We believe that uh, what your word says, that the unfolding of your word gives light. So we pray for all who are in this room, who all who are joining us online, who will take the moments here together as we gather to hear your word preached. We pray that the, the beauty of Jesus Christ would be exposited and shown from this text, that we would heed the warnings and the promises and the hopes and the fears of these last few sentences of the book of Revelation. May we leave this place here this morning confident of your goodness and grace toward us in Jesus Christ. And would you, uh, through your spirit and through the word and through being gathered with your church here this morning, would you stoke the fires of hope in our heart? Would you make the flames of, of joy and anticipation at seeing you face to face come alive in our mind's eye? We pray that for the areas of our hearts that may be despairing or discouraged or even deceived by what we hear in the media or read in the news or see in our family or even in our own personal walk with you, would we turn our eyes off of those things to the beauty of the risen Christ, to the promises that he has made that are certain and sure in this book, and that your church would be built up that we would repent of sin and come again to the knowledge of your goodness toward us in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 22, verse 6. As we said, verse 5 is the last chronological verse of your Bible. And as now the worship uh, echoes into eternity future... We now have a moment where you're going to have several different witnesses speak up. John is going to speak, an angel is going to speak, and Jesus Christ is going to speak. You're going to have the last recorded words of Jesus Christ here right at the end of your Bible. He's going to speak up as a witness. And he has something to say about everything that you've read from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 2. John's going to have something to say. 
about everything that you've read, about how you ought to live in light of the truth that you have received in Revelation 22. Look at what, how he starts. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, now this is the, one of the angels who had the seven bowls of the wrath of God, who showed John last week that we saw the new Jerusalem the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. And now, as worship echoes forth into eternity future, he then turns to John, and he has something to say to John in verse 6. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Now, why would he say that? Why would that be the very first thing that the angel responds with after John has seen these visions? Because when you hear the words, these things are trustworthy and true, you may think of other spots in your Bible. Even in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ himself is described as being both faithful and true. But he's a reliable witness. Can you trust what Jesus says? What do you think? I, I think we can. I always go with the guy who rose from the dead. I put the chips in over there. What does he say? What does he think? And now as John puts his pen down and finishes receiving these visions, he has this conversation with an angel who reminds him that these things, John, are trustworthy and true. You can bet on the revelation that I have given to you. That this is no, and you'll see this as we go through the passage, this, is no, uh, this isn't junk mail. This isn't go into your spam folder. These are things that you can count on. This is the word of the angel verifying and validating the visions that you have received. Paul says something similar in his writings. If you remember, he says, um, "Jesus, this is a trustworthy and true statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the, what, the foremost. You can count on this, that this is why Jesus came. So as this vision closes, it's important to remember that this isn't just John had a bad burrito on Patmos. John wasn't feeling good and had a bad dream. Ever have a bad dream and you wake up and you feel like your whole day is ruined? You go, I don't know what happened in that dream, but man, I, I feel sad or I feel anxious or I feel uncertain. That the angel for John makes sure that he knows the things that you've been writing down are trustworthy and true. Look at how he goes on. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. Where does that put John as a New Testament writer? It puts him in line with the Old Testament and New Testament prophets. It puts him in line with the scriptural testimony that has come from God himself. When you were a prophet in the Old Testament, you had to say exactly what God said. Otherwise, you die. We kill you. That's the standard for prophecy in the Old Testament. It's no less a standard in the New Testament. And now an angel speaks and said, what you have received, John, is trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That sound like Revelation chapter 1? Sounds like what we just read from Revelation chapter 1, that these two ideas are bound together. God sends an angel to tell John to tell the churches. This is a true and faithful and reliable message. One of the definitions of truth. And this is what helps us begin to understand why this epilogue is so important. One of the definitions of truth is that which corresponds to reality. See, a lot of us as Christians live our life in light of an objective reality that happened on the cross 2,000 years ago, right? We believe in Jesus and his incarnation, his perfect life, his death, his torture, his burial, his crucifixion, his three days in the grave, and his resurrection from the dead that's proclaimed to all nations. We believe that objective reality excuse me, happened 2,000 years ago. But now at the end of your Bible, eternity future is treated the same as the objective truth of the past. You with me? You see why this matters? Is that he takes objective truth in the past and he binds it to objective truth in the future and he puts them all underneath the validity and the truth of God's word. Can I trust that Jesus was risen from the dead? Yeah, I see it in God's word. Can I trust that God will be faithful to his word into eternity future? Oh, I don't know, Steve, it's revelation, it's hard to understand, I'm not real sure if God's going to come through, if he's going to do it. Well, no, that's the point. The angel says you can count on this. God will end sin one day. He will remove it from all creation. He will judge sin. 
He will reward the faithful. He'll remove the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Babylon raised up against the knowledge of himself. He'll crush it, remove it, redeem all of creation, make it all brand new, send the new, he new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and you will walk in the city, see him face to face one day. Count on it. That's what is ahead. Verse 7. Now Jesus has something to say. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Here's our sixth of seven blessings in this book. And the blessing is to those who what? What's it say? Those who keep it. Keep is the word that means to guard. It's what the soldiers did to the tomb of Jesus. All the way through the book of Revelation, it's an almost technical term for the perseverance of the saints, who those who will keep the commandments of God, who will keep the words of the prophecy of this book, who will say, I believe here and I am not moving. Here is where I stand upon the word of God. And what Jesus does is he binds his future coming to faithfulness now. You see that? He binds, I am coming soon, therefore, blessed are those who hold to the truth of what, it, you, what has been written and what has been delivered to you. Blessed are those who keep the words of this book. Now, what does, this mean? What does that mean? How do I keep and guard the words of this book? Why am I blessed if I hear it and obey it, like Revelation 1 says? Let me give you one big thing it means. One, it means what is, we've already seen in verse six, that this word is trustworthy and true. It matters what you think of Revelation, right? Whether or not it's a valid testimony of God, whether it has been delivered from Jesus Christ to John, to the churches, to us. One, it's true. Two, you keeping the prophecy of this book means that one of the ways that our spiritual lives are kept in obedience is how your heart is developed toward hope in the future. See, if I can live in light of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and I can live in light of Jesus' future coming and eradication of all sin and completing, uh, making all things new, then I can live with a hope that doesn't just look back, but a hope that looks forward. Now, when we hope, that's I think an important element of this testimony that has been given to us. When we hope, a lot of times we hope in things going well for us here. But when the Bible uses hope, it leans our hope on the word of God and the promises of God that God will be faithful to do the things that he said he will do. Amen? That's where it leans your hope. So Jesus himself says, I am coming soon. And blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Why would you read Revelation? I read Revelation about once a year. If you're reading Revelation merely for interest, I think you're doing it wrong. You should be reading Revelation to be reminded of all sorts of things that one day sin will be gone one day you will see him face to face. One day the distance between who I am and who I ought to be and who I want to be will be closed forever. One day there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, right? No more shame, none of that. That will all be gone and that should be stoking the fires of the heart of my life to look forward to how Jesus will be faithful to his word. He will do what he said he will do. Look at verse 8. Now John speaks up. You've had an angel, you've had Jesus. Now here's John, verse 8. We've got another embarrassing moment with John. You had one in Revelation 19. You're going to get another one here. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. This is the second time John has gotten this wrong. Now, we said this back in Revelation chapter 19. Look, look there real quick just to remember what happened back there so we can all laugh at John. 
Revelation 19, verse 9. The angel said to me, note where this happens. Okay, John has a vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb where God will finally dwell with his people. They will be together. And that testimony, that vision for John causes Revelation 19, verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We just said this message is trustworthy and true. The same thing happened back in Revelation 19 to John. John hears the testimony of this, tr- this vision being true. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now come back to Revelation 22, verse 8. I, John... I'm the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, why does John do this twice? You ever sin more than once? Anybody? Ever make that? Thank you for raising your hand. The rest of you are liars. You need to repent of lying. You ever commit the same, the same sin, the same struggle, the same pattern in your life that you don't like? What's interesting to me is, is John gets embarrassed biblically again. He messes up again. Why? Now, you remember in Revelation 19, one of the things we said is, here's John on the island of Patmos, and he has experienced the consequences of his sin. And what he has just seen is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 21 and 22, he's just seen the new heavens, the new earth. He's seen all of these visionary realities that have nothing to do with where he is. But they're the word of God. There's truth coming from the throne room of God through the words of an angel, through Jesus Christ himself. And now John is so overwhelmed by this visual and auditory experience that he just throws himself down at the feet of the angel. And one of the things we said in Revelation chapter 19 is that experience must be guarded and bound by truth. That we live in a time where subjective experience is more important and viewed as more authentic than objective truth. So that this angel just began this section saying these words are what? Trustworthy and true. This will come to pass. One of the temptations that you will see in false teaching that is in every culture and at every time is the temptation to finally and ultimately bring heaven down to earth on my terms. You with me? That if I just blow the hanky mail it away, receive the water, do the thing, give the money, join the club, I will be assured that heaven will come down to earth. And John now has to live in the same tension that you and I live in, of longing for the heavenly reality to finally and ultimately be fulfilled and having to hold on and cling to the truth of what God says. Have you seen through this book how God told the martyrs, wait a little while? Here's a robe, and they were told to wait until the full number of their brothers. That's back in Revelation chapter 6. And here's John as he finishes this penning book 66. He's so overwhelmed by the opportunity to see and to hear the truth of what God is going to do. And he messes up worship again. He points his worship to a created thing, not to the creator. Let me, I want to show you this. This is really, really important for the theme that you're going to see throughout these pages. Turn back just for a second to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, starting in verse 16. Here's what... Peter's um, talking about. Peter writes about the moment when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees Jesus Christ unveiled and glorious and beautiful and his clothes whiter than any launderer on earth could bleach them, Mark says. 
He says this in verse 16, we didn't follow clear, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We had an experience of Jesus being unveiled for who he is just like John did in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17, for when he, he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now watch this. This is so important for your Christian life right now because you, and you ever get frustrated that you're not experiencing God the way you want to? Anybody ever have that? You go, gosh, I wish I knew God more. I wish I had more experiences of God in terms of who he is. I wish I could uh, just have, man, if God could just swoop down and give me a little bit of walk by the cloud and walk by the fire, man, I'd be good. And here's Peter who stood on the mountain and saw Jesus Christ revealed for who he is and his testimony goes forth in the letters he writes. And then he says this in verse uh, 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Literally it says this. We have the prophetic word more sure. More sure than what? More sure than a subjective experience of seeing Jesus on the mountain. Well, what does that mean? That means here's John messing up his worship because he refused to worship in truth. He refused, he abandons the objective biblical reality of God's word, determining the sequence and timing and fruitfulness of God's purposes coming to pass, and he messes up in worship. And he's got to get rebuked by an angel twice. Why? Because the temptation of our hearts is to have that subjective experience. We're always pulled towards subjective experience trumping the word of God. Do you recognize that in you? I recognize that in me. That the simple, clear word of God. Where does Satan aim his first temptation? Did God say? Remember that? What's he aiming at? He's aiming at God's word. Then he goes on to impugn his character and all that. We'll talk about that in a second. Go back to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who hear, I'm sorry, who keep the words of this book, worship God. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Do you have a cross-reference in your Bible there that says Daniel 12? Let me read you Daniel 12. Don't turn there. Here's what it says. Daniel 12, 9 says this. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Now, in Daniel 12, it's seal up the words of these prophecies until the end. In Revelation chapter 2, what did he say? Open them up. Let everybody hear them. Preach them loud and wide and proclaim the truth of what you hear in the book of Revelation. Do you want to do that? You want to go talk to your neighbor and pull out the book of Revelation? There's the command. Don't seal it up. Let everybody know what is coming. Because what was sealed in Daniel's day is now opened in our day. It's opened in John's day. And you're meant to read it and keep it and obey it and tell it. Now, this is one of the more difficult verses here in this little passage is verse 11. And it follows verse 10. So Daniel 12 helps us interpret Revelation 22.10. There was a time of sealing. And then there's a recognition that there are people who are making choices in light of what they hear. Okay? That's important. Look at verse 11. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. It seems like that's approval, doesn't it? But what it is, is, remember, you've got to interpret in context. One of the most important hermeneutical interpretive ideas is you interpreting verses in context. What have we just heard in verse 10? Open up the glory of God in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the truth that one day he will judge sin and then let people make their decision. 
let them live in light of the truth that you have proclaimed. What am I responsible for? The clear preaching and teaching of God's word, that you would be absolutely clear on what God's word said. What's your job? You gotta make a choice. You've got to make a decision. Will I choose to live in light of the very clear preaching and teaching of God's word? Will I choose to live in light that Jesus is coming again one day? Will I choose to believe that he will judge sin? What choice will you make upon hearing the clarity of Jesus' promise that he will return again and that those words are trustworthy and true? And the angel says, let him choose. Let them decide. And the most fearsome thing about this passage is that our choices are eventually and eternally determinative. That the rejection of the word of God and Jesus Christ and his invitation to repent and be forgiven of your sins will one day result in your perseverance. That in light of all that's happening around me in my culture or in my family or in my heart and when I choose by faith to cling to the truth of what God has said, I will be found to be vindicated. That's what the last three chapters of this book has been all about, hasn't it? That God has vindicated his word toward his people. If I refuse it, I continue to act uh, evil and wicked and filthy and refuse it and do the things that I want to do, refusing the truth of God revealed in his word, that one day I will experience the consequences for my sin in the most horrific way imaginable. Imaginable. You remember the story of um, Jesus tells a parable about hell. In Luke chapter 16, it's the rich man and Lazarus parable. You remember that parable? And Jesus talks about Lazarus being laid at the gates of the rich man who ate finely and had fine dining and all that. And it says Lazarus longed to eat from the table of the rich man. And then Jesus fast forwards and he gets to the end of their life. And one of them is being comforted, Lazarus, in Abraham's bosom. The rich man is in torment, it says, in hell. And he's still telling Abraham what to do. And he's telling Abraham to tell Lazarus what to do. And he tells Abraham to tell Lazarus to dip his finger and to give him some peace and some uh, satisfaction and some relief from the place of torment that he's in. And Abraham says, no, there's a great chasm fixed between you and I and none of us can cross over. And then he says... The rich man says to Abraham, send Lazarus to tell my brothers so that they don't come to this place of torment. And at the end of days, in the place of torment, the rich guy wants to do evangelism. And Abraham says something incredibly sobering. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no, they'll believe if somebody rises from the dead. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody rises from the dead. What's that mean? It means that your spiritual life, your perseverance as a Christian, your hope in the future is grounded on the truth of what God has said in his word. You wrap your life around God's inerrant word. Look at verse 12. Behold, here he is again, I'm coming soon. What do you think Jesus wants to tell you? I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. What's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? The return of Jesus Christ. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what, we, what he has done. Now, in the flow of thought, we have the gospel message that's trustworthy and true. We have our response to it that needs to be rightly grounded in the, in the truth of God and his word, not just in our uh, enthusiastic response where we worship anything and not God instead. We have the truth of God's word going forth, the consequences of people's choices laid out in front of us, but then we have the promise of reward for faithfulness. Isn't that good news? That Jesus says, if anyone gives a cup of water to one of these little ones, he will by no means lose his reward. That means from the biggest things to the smallest things, God will not forget your acts of faithfulness. He sees, and he will return, and he will 
reward. Verse 13, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end, which means I'm in charge of everybody's eternal destiny. I don't really believe in Jesus and think that he was who he says he was. Well, you will experience him at the end of days because he is the one in Revelation chapter 2 who has the keys of death and Hades. He is the one who is the ultimate determiner of everybody's future eternal destiny. Jesus has that right. And that's what he says here. I'm the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega. Verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now that's a, 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 a shorthand for repentance. It's quoted back in Revelation chapter 7 when the tribulation martyrs are coming out and being killed for their faith. And uh, the angel speaks to John and asks John, who are these? And John says, my Lord, you know. And he said, these are the ones who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That they have found forgiveness and welcome into the heavenly throne room because of their uh, willingness to repent for their sins and to find forgiveness in Jesus' blood. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have two things. Watch the two things that are promised for forgiveness. Not only are my sins taken away when I repent of my sin and come to Jesus Christ and the blood that he has poured out for the forgiveness of sins, but I'm also granted two beautiful realities that come as a result of that, of what Jesus has accomplished for me. I'm not just brought to zero, but I'm given infinite righteousness as well. Look at what he says. So that they may have the right to the tree of life. John chapter 1 says that we have been given the right to become children of God. Revelation 22 says, says that we have been given the right to eat of the tree of life. Who was cast out of the garden and wasn't able to eat of the tree of life? Adam and Eve. They had no more access because of their sin, which means in my forgiveness of sin, my sin is taken away, and now I have free and clear access to the tree of eternal life. Amen? Man, isn't that good? Not only that, I have eternal and free access that they may enter the city by the gates, that I am welcomed into the very presence of God who is the very light of the new Jerusalem. So I have eternal life because of forgiveness of sins and I have eternal intimacy and relationship with God forever and ever and ever because of what Jesus has done for me. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's a contrast. It's not that these people live on the edge of town. It's that they don't have any access to eternal life and the presence of God. There's no way in for them because their sins have not been forgiven. They have not been cleansed of the things that they have done. They refuse to love the truth, Paul says. Verse 16, here's Jesus again. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see all the titles that Jesus uses? Alpha, Omega, first, last, beginning, and I'm the root and the descendant of David. That brings together two big ideas. One, it brings about the, uh, uh, it brings about the idea of his kingship, that David is the king of Israel, that God has promised to bring the fulfillment of that uh, crown and regal authority to through his descendants. So that Jesus says two things, I'm both God and man in one quick brief statement. I'm the root, which means I'm the source of David, and I'm the descendant, I'm the physical descendant of David. How is that true? I don't know. God does that. It's called the theanthropic union, God, man, together, fully God, fully man. And Jesus quickly and briefly just lets you know that's who he is. I am the bright morning star. That's from Numbers 24. It's a, it's a proclamation of a false prophet named Balaam who says that the morning star is Jesus himself who will one day come and rule with a scepter. So this regal and royal authority seen by uh, the the descendants of David and seen by false prophets both recognize Jesus for who he is. Verse 17. Now we get to perhaps the most uh, eager invitation in the entire book of Revelation in verse 17. Look at what it says. The spirit and the bride say what? 
Come, what does your heart long for in the center of who you are as a Christian? That the Spirit's testimony, this is one of two times that the Spirit himself speaks in this book, and the longing of the Holy Spirit of God is for Jesus to return. The longing of the Spirit of God and the longing of his people, the bride, is for Jesus to come back. Amen? Jesus, come. Please come. Now watch this. As we've worked through this passage, there's about six different references to either the word of God, a prophet, or prophecy. Have you seen that? Have you seen that as you read it? That it comes out of the the epilogue. There's this consistent reference to the word of God. And now here's the reaction of people to the word of God. The reaction of the spirit of God to the promises written in this book is come. The reaction of the bride who longs to be reunited and brought together with the bridegroom is come. And let the one who hears say come. Now there's two elements to the gospel message. There's an external call and there's an internal call. And they're both together in this verse right here. Jesus consistently talks, especially in the letters to the churches in this book, and he'll say, let he who has ears hear. He'll say it when he talks through his parables. That he'll say, the things that I have said, let him who has ears to hear, hear. And all the way through this book, we've been hearing the truth of God unveiled and revealed to us for what God will do and who Jesus is and how he has the right to take the scroll from him who is seated on the throne. That he comes back in Armageddon, that he judges Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and throws them all into the lake of fire and recreates everything. And now the one who hears should respond in faith to these truths. So that there's an external call. There's an external testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, look at what he says in the remainder of the verse. Let the one who is thirsty come. I love that this is here. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55 that we looked at last week. That not only is there an external reality of the truth of God's holiness and the, the danger of sin and the threat of hell and the beauty of Jesus Christ who forgives sin, but there's an inner reality that goes on inside of us. That when we come to Jesus Christ, we recognize that I need something outside of me to satisfy something inside of me that I cannot satisfy on my own. And God knows that. And what God does is he takes the thirsty and he takes the external call and he brings them together and he does the miracle of regeneration. He does the miracle of new spiritual life where you can know God. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. How much does it cost me to receive salvation? Nothing. What's it cost Jesus? everything. Someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay to make this relationship between me and God right. And there's this invitation from Jesus Christ himself to come and take the water without price, to be received into the heavenly courts freely with welcome from God himself. Come, come. Do you see how the, the phrases turn It turns from the spirit and the bride longing for Jesus to come to now a call from God himself, an invitation to come and to receive and to provide for what you cannot provide for yourself, to satisfy the spiritual wilderness inside of all of us and to receive freely from Jesus Christ. Now that invitation is so real and so sincere from God himself that if you don't know that, If you don't hear that today, I want to show you why Jesus takes that so seriously. Maybe you came in here today and you've been thinking, Steve, I would like to join or maybe create a cult. Kind of have it on the horizon, been thinking about it a lot. I would like to create my very own cult. Here's how you do it. You want to know how to do it? Here's how you do it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. It's one of the, it's the only warning in this passage. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, okay? Let him who hears, has ears to hear, hear. 
let them respond in faith to the truth that they have heard. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in his book. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. How do you create a cult? You do one of two things. One, you add to God's word. You decide it's God, grace, Jesus, plus fill in the blank. And Jesus, now this isn't misinterpretation. Because listen, I do this for a living. I've gotten some interpretations wrong. And you've gotten some interpretations wrong in the scriptures, right? Amen? I just need, maybe I'll talk to the old folks. Folks older than me, you got some interpretations wrong? See, Dallas is raising his hand. Go talk to Dallas. We've gotten some things wrong. This is not misinterpretation. This is misleading. This is say the gospel is very, very clear to understand, but now I start adding things to it, and God says, I will add to you the plagues of this book. Have you read this book? <laughs> Do you remember the plagues? Goodness. You remember opening up the abyss and the scorpions and the ladies' hair and the locust faces and the, I mean, there's no bueno. Number two, what you do is you remove. You press mute where God has spoken clearly. That's the other way. Remember what what Satan said in the garden. Did God really say? And then he started to impugn God's character. And then he said, if you go against God, you shall not surely die. You start to remove the consequences of sin. You start to believe that me and God are on good terms without Jesus Christ. You start to remove all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And you begin to quiet the areas where God has spoken. And you've got your making of a cult. How serious does God take that? If you mislead God's people, remember what Jesus says? If anyone misleads my little ones, better for him to have an upper millstone tied around his neck and thrown in the bottom of the sea. It, better, it would be better for you to be lobster food than for you to mess with my kids for you to mess with the word of God, for you to lead people into stumbling and mislead people into uh, misunderstanding who I am. Verse 20, he who testifies these things says, here it is again, surely I'm coming soon. Those are the last chronological words of Jesus Christ in the Bible. What do you think Jesus wants you to know? He's coming soon. He's coming back. That you and I are meant to live in light of Jesus' imminent return. Yeah, Steve, but it's been a long time. Yeah, but it's been 2,000 years. Yeah, but there's lots of stuff I want to do. God, please don't come before I get married. God, please don't come before this baby gets here. God, please don't come until I get this house. God, please don't come until I finish my degree. God, there's a lot that I'd really like to do in my life before you come back. Would you come back when I'm about 85? And Jesus continues, continues, continues to testify about the word of God, his faithfulness to it, and his imminent return where he will bring it to pass. What's John say? See the close quotes? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the beating heart of the church. This is the beating heart of this aged apostle who's experiencing the consequences for being faithful to God's word and experiencing exile on the island of Patmos. And the very last verse of your Bible, this is what I want you to see. This is so important. If you're just waking up, let me give you this verse. This is the last thing we're going to say today. It's the last thing that your Bible says. The thing that should stoke life into your heart is Revelation 22, 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. How does the Bible end? It ends with grace. It ends with not, you better watch out. What's the Santa thing? Better not cry. I'm telling you why. That's that's Santa Claus coming to town. What's the, he sees you when you're sleeping. Knows, like, isn't that how you think this book should end? You got Jesus going. You be, hey, look busy. I'm coming back. You be, hey, you better hurry up. Get, get being obedient. No, the Bible doesn't end like that. 
The Bible ends with the beautiful, wonderful, unsearchable riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. See, now your Bible can end because now you've got a Bible that goes from in the beginning to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you get to the gospel like that? In the beginning, God who created the heavens and the earth, the seas and the dry land, who is perfectly holy and righteous and out of his goodness and his kindness created a world for us to live in, to breathe Ecclesiastes says that God made man upright, but he has gone in search of many schemes. And what you and I need, Christians, what you need today is a reminder that your Bible ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day bring all of the promises of this book to pass, and in his goodness and kindness bring you to live with him forever, to eradicate sin from your life, to redeem your relationship to where you will see him eye to eye for all eternity and worship and reign and rule with him forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, what a good book this is that you have given us. That we pause and we remember that from eternity past to eternity future, you are God and that the word that you have given us in this book allows us to build our lives upon it, to hope in it, to receive the assurance that our sins are forgiven, to remember that you indeed are coming soon. And that that is the hope of our hearts. May we keep the words of the prophecy of this book by clinging to their truth and stoking the fires of our hope to one day see you face to face. Father, forgive us for living so often with worldly wisdom and worldly eyes, with our eyes set down here rather than eyes set above. Would you make us heavenly-minded? Would you make us hopeful in the words that you have given us? And would you stoke the joy in us with confidence in your word to know that you are coming soon? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.